Fantastic. Uh, always good to see the room so full. Uh, welcome to all of you. If you uh, are here for the first time and I've never met you, uh, welcome to you. It's great to have you. My name's Vaughan. I'm one of the pastors here at City. And I really just pray that you would uh, have God meet you where you're at today and that uh, He would speak into your heart. And uh, I, I pray that you'll just feel like this is a place that you could potentially call home into the future um, because God wants us. He wants us uh, to gather amongst a group of people that we can grow with, that we can challenge um, as far as uh, continuing to grow in Jesus goes. And so welcome to you. We are in a series, a uh, third week of a series that we've called On Purpose. And it really is just a series where we're taking a look at the life of David and uh, specifically his life as it relates to purpose. Scripture says this about David. It says that he was a man who served God's purpose in his own generation. And it says that he was a man after God's own heart. That he would do everything God wanted him to do. That was David. But can I tell you something? God is wanting us to be a people who would serve his purposes in our generation. And I'm not talking about we only get to serve God's purposes when you're a pastor with a mic up front. To serve God's purposes in the, in the business space, in the health space, whatever space you might find yourself in, to serve the purposes of God there. And what you're going to need in order to do that, you're going to need to have a heart that beats for the same thing as God's heart uh, beats for. That God, you would allow God to change your heart and shape your heart so that your heart is moved for the things of God. That you're not just going to work every single day for a paycheck, but that you're going to serve the purposes of God in your generation. Who knows how God might not use you wherever you are placed. Are you up for it? You're up for God using you like you used David? These are two critical aspects that we need to grasp when we think purpose as Christ followers. We've got to grasp that uh, when we think purpose and what, what, what we want our life to look like, we've got to connect it to serving His purpose. We've got to connect it to having a heart after His heart. Otherwise, can I tell you, the purpose is too small. The purpose is insignificant when it's un and disconnected from what God wants to do with your life. God has always used the insignificant to do incredible things for Him. And sometimes that insignificant just looks insignificant to us in our day and age. But to God, it massively impacts people's lives. So don't go for the glory. Just go for the, I want to be ser serving Jesus in my generation. James preached last week and I thought to myself, how good, how good is God that when David was wanting to pursue a purpose that wasn't God's purpose for him, that God intervened. Uh, we see that uh, God intervenes, he commends David, David wanted to build a temple um, to honor the Lord his God and God commends him, commends him for that, for having it in his heart to want to build a temple to honor God's name. But he loves David too much. He loves David too much to uh, let him pursue something that God hasn't uh, wanted him to do. And so David has God say, no, David. Quite a tough thing. 
for God to say, no, that's not for you. That's going to be for your son, Solomon. And as we contemplated how difficult that must have been for David, we saw that God's no is as loving as had he said to David, David, go and do this. We saw that out of that no, genuine worship came. We saw that nothing done to serve God's purposes is ever in vain. That it actually impacts the generations. And so it's so important for us to be happy with whatever it is that God would want us to do with our lives in terms of serving his purposes. The genealogy of Jesus will forever be linked to David. Forever. But he didn't build a temple. No, he didn't. He did a whole lot of other incredible things. But he didn't build a temple. But even although God said, no, David, that's not for you, God still caused his, um, Jesus' gene genealogy to come from David. As I spoke to people last week, I thought, and, and I listened to them processing how they'd received the message. Most people said to me, they, they, they found themselves uh, infused with hope. Hope because they have experienced God say no in whatever area it is. And sometimes that can bring so much discouragement that we fail to see that actually no is not all bad. What we saw last week is that God's no is not always all that bad. Well, today we're going to be looking at uh, a passage of Scripture that's also not a feel-good passage of Scripture. It has some difficult bits, has some hard bits, but I want you to hear this. God is wanting to bring hope to hearts here today, just like He did last week. So we're going to be in, Psalm, uh, in, in 2 Samuel 24, and uh, this passage is actually written towards the end of David's reign, just before he hands over to Solomon. So it's coming towards the end of his, his time in terms of, of his reign. Some of us in this room are further on in our years of pursuing Jesus. I'm wondering if there might not be some of you that are going to be able to relate specifically to this message today. God's wanting to bring hope to your hearts. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1 to 4, and we're going to work through it in, in little pieces. It says this, uh, verse 1, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. First point for today is David gets it wrong. The David that we are seeing in these couple of verses is not the same David that we have seen in other parts of Scripture and over the last couple of weeks. Um, we're not seeing a David here 
walking out to face Goliath with five stones and a slingshot, trusting in nobody and nothing else but the name of the Lord his God. We're not seeing that David who wrote Psalm 20 verse 7, and this is what it says. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Instead, we find a David who's putting aside all of the things that he has learned, all of the uh, experiences that he has had in God, things that he has found to be true of God. We see him putting those aside, moving his reliance and his trust from God himself onto the number of his fighting men. We see him, in effect, doing what the people of Israel did when they asked for a king. It's like, God, uh, you're great, but we would actually love to have a human king like the other nations have. So uh, just uh, let us have a, a human king. Well, David is doing now what the other nations' kings would do. He's counting He's fighting men, putting his reliance on them rather than putting his reliance on God himself. Even Joab sees how ludicrous David's request is. When David uh, comes to him, Joab says, may God increase the army a hundredfold and may you see it. But David, why on earth are you asking us to do this? Some translations say, why do you delight in this thing? That word delight in the Hebrew meant to bend towards, to take pleasure in. See, David's heart was beginning to bend towards the number of his army, away from trusting in God. He was actually beginning to take pleasure in it. My army is this big. Maybe he was even thinking to himself, yes, I've really accomplished something in life. Forgetting that it's actually God who got him there. See, what you and I are delighting and trusting in is a great litmus test for where our eyes and our hearts are. Whether our hearts and our eyes are on God or on the things that he has given. People seasoned in following and pursuing the purposes of God. People who have known the goodness of God over many years, just like David had, can easily take their eyes off of God. Take their eyes off of God, the one that they used to delight in, and place their delight on the things that God has given. Life becomes all about them and not about the purposes of God. Life becomes all about pursuing riches and power. In other words, what is on their heart rather than what is on God's heart. I had a question for myself as I processed this and I want to pose it to you guys too. Is your life marked by pursuing what your heart wants or by pursuing what God's heart wants? God would have us pursue what his heart wants. Lord, may you help us to do that. So David gets it wrong. Next point is one that I'm going to simply call God's response part one, and you'll see later why it's only part one. 
what is God's response to all of this? What is God's response to David's heart bending to what God has done, what God has given, rather than trusting in God? Um, God's heart is one of anger. You have to hear that. Sin angers God. It's important when we read these first four verses to recognize that God says he saw, he, he saw Israel's sin. He saw them sinning again. I don't know how many times it's again and again and again because that was just the, the CV of Israel. But it's our CV too, isn't it? Again and again. God sees sin. He saw the intentions of David's heart. He saw that David's heart and its motives were delighting in something other than him, sin. And the Bible says that God's anger burned. That's not a light anger. His anger burned. And we need to see when we read something like that, that God's anger burns against sin. We need to see that sin is so bad and so terrible for God that it causes his anger to burn. No sin is seen as small by God because he's holy. God hates sin, the Bible says. He hates sin because he knows that sin brings with it destruction and heartache. Did you hear that? God hates sin, yes, because he's holy, but also because it brings destruction and heartache, and he loves us too much. That's why God is not scared to confront us in our sin, because he doesn't want destruction and heartache to, to mark our lives. He's wanting to spare us from some of those heartaches and destruction. Not only that, but it separates us from a relationship with those that he loves. Sin separates us from relationship with God. And he doesn't like it for that reason because he loves us. See, as people, we love to minimize how serious our sin is. Sometimes we even try to convince ourselves that we haven't sinned. Some might say, looking at this passage, was it really so bad? I mean, if there's a census, like, why does God respond in this way? All it was was a census, and David delighted in what he was doing, and nobody was hurt in the process. He wasn't hurting anybody by doing it. Maybe, yes, conducting a census wasn't uh, bad because census had been done, censuses had been done before, although there is some argument, and we're not going to talk about it today, concerning this specific, specific census. But more than that, the motives of David's heart were sinful. God saw it. Joab sees it. David himself, immediately after receiving the results of the, sentence, of the census, nine months later, and even before God confronts him on his sin, says this in verse 10, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. God sees it. Joab sees it. David knows that he's done something sinful, something greatly sinful. Here is the thing, though. We don't get to define sin. God does. His criteria isn't 
Did it make you feel happy when you were doing that? If it did, yes, tick, not sin. Or did it hurt somebody else's life when you were doing that? No. Okay, tick. That means that isn't sin. That's not how God judges sin. If God calls something sin, he does so with the far superior wisdom of being God. Maybe we haven't completely grasped that. God calls sin, sin with a far superior wisdom that comes with who he is of being God. And so we need to just accept it, not push it aside, not say, oh, it's not so bad in our day and age. If it was sin then, sin now. Because he has that superior wisdom, and we are just men and women, we have no way of processing or seeing what destruction our sin will bring spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, or in any other way that sin might bring destruction to our lives. Because we are just man, but he's God, and he sees we have no way of perceiving where our lifestyle of sin could take us. But God does. And He loves us. He doesn't want us to pursue that. So the first thing we see is that uh, anger is God's first response. The next is discipline, verse 15. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. Sin has consequences. Still has consequences. Even although Jesus has come, sin outside of Jesus and our repenting and coming before him will have consequences. It destroys. Constantly giving in to our sinful desires will result in destruction. But here's the good news. Fortunately, God does not just leave us to be destroyed. Did you hear that? Fortunately, God does not leave you and me to just head down this road and be destroyed. He intervenes. And the thing that he intervenes with is discipline. And his motive for the discipline is to move us to repentance. Did you hear that? He wants to move us to repentance. This is what Hebrews 12 verse 5 to 8 says. My son, you could say daughter as well, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Discipline is a sign of our legitimacy of being sons and daughters. I think maybe when we think about God, we don't uh, completely get that, but we know those of us that are parents in the room, that any discipline that we impose on our children is actually for their good. We are wanting them to, to not 
fall in that area, not get hurt by touching that plate. We are imposing that discipline because they're sons and daughters. Actually, a parent that doesn't impose that discipline and just says, ah, yeah, carry on, touch that plate. Let's see what's going to happen. Wouldn't be much of a parent, right? Wouldn't say much to the child, like, why don't you stop me? Why don't you stop me from going down that road? God does the same at an infinite, infinitely greater level. And his heart is so that we all know that we are his. So God's heart is to move us to repentance. What was David's response? And this is my third point. Well, his first response was repentance. Verse 10 says, David was conscience stricken. After he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a foolish thing. Verse 17, he says, to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. When God confronts him with his sin, you don't see David saying, but I've done so many good things, just like give me a little bit of slack, you know, tick the box. I've done 10 good things, like this is one of the not so good things, but actually I'm winning on the good. I'm not doing so well on the, on the bad. No, he admits that he sinned. He doesn't say to God either, hey, actually it's this nation that you've given me. You know, this Israel, they just grumble from from. Egypt, all the way through the wilderness, grumble, grumble, grumble. It's because of them that I've sinned. I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you feel like you just want to pull your hair out with these guys? I couldn't take it anymore. I just, I just sinned. Or my circumstances, my circumstances were so tough. Everything was coming at me at once. And so I just decided to go down the road of sin. No, you don't see any of that in David. David takes responsibility for his sin. He says, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. See, David admitted that he had sinned against God. And you and I need to take responsibility when we've sinned and admit that we've sinned against God. Sometimes that sin has involved people. But ultimately, we have sinned against God, and we need to admit it, just like David. So David repents, and then he looks to God's mercy. God offers David three choices of discipline. Verse 13 and 14, Gad the prophet comes to David, says to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over, decide how I should answer the one who sent me, and the one who sent him was God. David says to Gad, I am in distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. David chooses to fall into the hands of the Lord, so key chooses to fall into the hands of the Lord, and he says something else regarding that. He said, because he has great mercy. 
He has great mercy. How does David know that? Because over the decades, that characteristic of who God is has come through again and again on behalf of the nation of Israel. They sin, he shows mercy. They sin, he shows mercy. David knows far better to fall into God's hands than to fall into man's hands. Next thing that we see David do, sorry. Next thing that we see David do is to sacrifice for his sin. First part of verse 25 says, David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. See, in the Old Testament, God had provided a way for his wrath to be satisfied against mankind's sin. Men and women's sin. And that way was a burnt offering. David embraces that way. I want you to see that. He embraces the means that God has provided and he himself offers a burnt offering. God has provided a way for his wrath against you and I who have sinned against him to be satisfied too. And that way is Jesus, his son. We no longer need to bring a sacrifice because God has provided the sacrifice. He's provided the sacrifice in the form of his son, Jesus, who is sent to the earth, not just to do miracles, those were very nice, but to die on a cross as a sacrifice for me and for you, a sacrifice for our sin. Just like David needed to, to receive God's way of provision, we need to receive God's way of provision and embrace His way of provision. That way of provision is Jesus. If we do not embrace God's way of provision... God's wrath against our sin is not satisfied. Means that God has provided a way for his wrath to be satisfied in his son Jesus. We reject that and we say to ourselves, I'm not going to. That means that we then are going to receive the wrath against our sin because we haven't chosen the sacrifice. We haven't embraced God's way, being Jesus. How do we embrace this uh, provision? Well, we embrace His way, as I've just said. John 14 verse 6 says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, I'm going to say that again, no one, that means everyone comes to the Father except through me. We then believe in Jesus as the one who God sent to be our sacrifice. Romans 10 verse 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And we also confess our sin. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins 
and purify us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes we've seen the destruction. We've seen the heartache. We wonder how are we going to get rid of the sin and its destruction. There's one way. It's to come to Jesus. It's to confess our sin, repent of our sin, and to believe and receive him. I want to uh, uh, note this, though. David did not just bring a burnt offering. David brought a fellowship offering too. David, the man after God's own heart, was not just coming to God because he was fearful of God's wrath and he just wanted that taken care of. No, David, the man after God's own heart, came to God for relationship, for fellowship. God knew David David knew God. Sin had affected that relationship, and David wanted to be reconciled to God once again. God brings us into relationship also. He brings us into family. He uses the, the, the terms that he is our father. We are his children. 1 John 1 verse 12 to 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those are David's responses. What is God's response, part two, to those responses of David? His response is one of mercy. The second part of verse 25 says this, Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. God doesn't want us to just stop at it's all about your sin. He wants us to admit that we have sinned against him. But he wants us to see the whole story. He wants us to see the whole story today. And the whole story and the goal of this story with all of its difficult parts, the parts where we maybe feel God putting his finger on our hearts even as we sit here in this room, or as we watch online, the goal of the story from God's perspective was to show mercy to Israel and mercy to David. And he's wanting to do the same for us in this room today. He wants to show us mercy. David uh, writes this, having experienced Everything that we are speaking about uh, today and all the tragedy of it and the heartache of it. He says this in Psalm 145 verse 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. No terrible word to say about God from David's mouth in this passage. Just voicing incredible appreciation. Because you know why? God could have just decided, James, you'll pay for your sin. Tom, you'll pay for your sin. Sarah, you will for yours too. Marcy, you're going to pay for your sin. But he didn't. He didn't. He decided he would pay for our sin. What a, what a travesty that we don't pay for our sin. God makes the payment. 
that God would send his son to be the payment for your sin and my sin. It should have never been like that. Except God is a God of mercy. He is gracious and he is compassionate to all that he has made. We've seen David's response. It's time for us to respond. Because we can't hear something like this. And not ourselves say, Lord, how would you have me respond? I would say there are probably many in this room today that have, have made a response over the years. And we found mercy from God. I want him to break it up into two groups today. And I want to start out by asking us to raise our hands. If you can say yes to this question. Have you ever in your life sinned against God? Anybody? Maybe you're not 100% sure. I'm going to help you with that. The Bible says, God says, all have sinned. All have sinned and haven't met the standards that He requires. We've all sinned. We all had our hands up now, right? You know what that means? We all had our hand up. We all need God's mercy. We don't deserve God's mercy. But we all need it. All need God's mercy. That was demonstrated for us when he sent his son Jesus. What a huge cost. Cost that we should have paid. But God paid. We all need mercy. And God is calling us today into his loving arms and saying, I'm wanting to give you mercy. I'm wanting you to have a relationship with me. But then what you're going to need to do is you're going to have to embrace my way. And my way is Jesus. My way is for you to confess your sin to him. I mean, actually, how much easier could he have made it? To acknowledge that we've missed the mark. He could have said, listen, you've got to walk over coals. You've got to climb mountains. You've got to do a whole lot of different things. He said, all I want you to do is like David. Say, it's me. It's me who's a sinner. It's me who sinned against you. Not because of anything else, me. That's the first group of people. Second group of people is, if we are in relationship with Jesus and we've received his mercy, which many of us in this room have, then the question this passage is asking of us is are we living our lives to serve His purpose? Are we living our lives to please His heart? We're not going to get it perfectly right. I'm so grateful that Jesus continues to extend mercy to us. But have you received mercy? Then, this is what 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. 
If you put your faith in Jesus today, do you, want, you need to know that you're special to God. Maybe it's years ago that you put your faith in Jesus. You need to know that you're still special to God. His special possession. That you may, if you're all of those things, declare. The other words for that is to tell out or proclaim. What? The praises. The praises of who? Of God. About His goodness and His excellence. Those are other words that you could have put in there for praise. Of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy. Now you have. That should cause our hearts to worship, but I'm going to ask us to close our eyes. Because I know there are people in this room, maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you've never embraced God's sacrifice, His way. Maybe for others of you, you've gone astray. You have to be honest with yourself. Begin to serve your own purposes. And it's taken you down a road of destruction. But because you're His special possession today, you're not in this room by chance. God is calling you back. Today is your day. Say, God, I want to live for you again. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus to forgive your sin, I'm going to ask you to do something really bold while everybody's eyes are closed and heads are bowed. Put up your hand nice and high. This isn't for me to say, okay, fantastic, great preach. Sometimes we needed to be bold enough to say, it's me. It's me. I see that hand. More importantly, God sees that hand. I see other hands all over the room. I want you to know today that God's not pointing finger at your heart to say how terrible you've been. It's pointing finger at your heart to say He wants to show you mercy. I'm going to pray for those whose hands are raised and you might want to come and talk to me afterwards. You're welcome to. But I want you to do this. I want you to simply just admit that you're a sinner. Just verbalize that to God from your heart. Admit that you're a sinner. And ask Him to forgive your sin. Ask Him to bring you into relationship with Him again. Lord, I want to pray for people who have just prayed that prayer. Lord, I want to pray that they would know your love and your mercy for them today. Lord, I want to pray that you would shed your love abroad in their hearts. Lord, that they would know that they are loved. Not just loved by a God who's out there, but the God who made them. The God who died for them. And the God who's been calling them today. Lord, I pray that they'll know that despite what they have done and that you have seen what they've done, you called them to mercy today. Lord, I pray that their hearts would rejoice at the fact that you have called them to mercy today. And Lord, I want to pray for the rest of us. Lord, I want to pray that we would be a people 
when we have received mercy that would live our lives to serve your purpose, to please your heart. Lord, no matter where we find ourselves, Lord, that that would be the purpose that we want to live our lives for. Lord, that we would want to live our lives for the purpose of serving God and pleasing His heart in the workplace, in the classroom, in the university space. Lord, all for your glory. Lord, praising you, making you known because you're the one that died for us and showed us mercy. Lord, we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.